You may be seated. So how you doing after that reading of the word of the Lord? You encouraged? Ready to go home? <laughs> Sometimes the old time preacher gets a bum rap. I'm personally not a fan of the hellfire and brimstone stylistic preaching. But the reality is heaven and hell is the reality. And so I also respect the preacher for not cowering. At Trinity, we believe that the Bible, the whole Bible, is worthy to be preached and believed and submitted to. Even difficult texts like the one we just heard. Difficult texts exist. They live to help us to better know the one true God, not the God we fashion him to be. He's not the God made in our image. And so this text lives to help us to know something about God. And we, we're going to dig into that. Before we do, let's, let's pray. Ask for the Lord's help. God, I pray that you would move us from our indifference to a passionate pursuit of you. I pray that you would move us from our pride that doesn't inquire of the Lord like we read of here to a people who are humble and seeks after God. Lord, I pray that you would move us from our token religion, our token pursuit of you, to a passionate, worshipful, God, I need you, love for our God. I pray that you would do that, Lord, that you would stir our hearts this morning, even as we preach these, these verses. This morning we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Question. Who is God in this text? Did you hear anything of God's character in the text? The answer is he is the God of wrath and of grace. You see, the wrath and the grace of God are provided for us to move us today. To move us from the same slumber that we see there in Isaiah's day. This text is to function in our lives by helping us see the past people of God, to see their indifference, to see God's response to their stubborn pride and failure. It lives to stir us, to move us, to wake us up from the slumber. And so we're going to dive right in. The first point is pride. We've got this. If you remember, that was similar to last week's point is, I've got this. Pride, we've got this. Because that's what the people are saying and doing, beginning back again in verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know Ephraim. And the inhabitants of Samaria who say, 
in pride and in arrogance of heart. We'll get to what they say here in just a moment. With an arrogant heart, with a boastful posture, what they're saying is, is what's happening to us is not a big deal. We've got this. We can handle this. What's happening? The bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild. We will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. In other words, um, we don't need to look to the Lord. We are resourceful. We are resilient. We are prosperous. We've got this. Rather than turning to God in the destruction that is being described here, they're saying we can turn any disaster into a display of our accomplishments because we can rebuild even better than what once was. We can take the fallen bricks and we can build with dressed stones, meaning nicer stones. We can take the sycamore trees that have been cut down, which was a common tree in the time. We can take down our palm trees, right? And we can replace them. We can plant cedars, which were more rare in their day because we're resilient and we're all that and we've got this. You know, church, we're better at talking about prayer than actually praying. We're better at telling Bible stories and knowing a few Bible stories than seeking the God of the Bible. We can be so busy in the rebuilding programs, rebuilding from the mess of our lives that our pride created in the first place. Our bricks can fall in our day. Our bricks can fall in our living rooms, and we can arrogantly rebuild with dress stones, or we can rebuild with moralism. We can toss in a little perfunctory prayer, a token repentance, while our hearts are saying, we've got this, we can rebuild. Verse 11, but the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. But the Lord raises the adversaries. He raises the adversaries against their arrogant hearts or the arrogance of, we can rebuild this to display what a mighty people we are, to display our accomplishments. John Oswald writes, how often but the Lord, has been written over against human arrogance and pomp. David thought he was all-powerful and could take any woman in the kingdom, but the Lord. Moses thought that power resided in his hand, but the Lord. So throughout human history, whenever humanity has forgotten that it is but a reflector of a glory not its own, when it has succeeded in lighting some guttering candle of its own making, the sun arises and all our glory is as nothing. There's irony in verse 11, isn't there? In this, but the Lord raises the adversaries. The irony is that God is raising up an army as the people are raising up themselves. 
reminded Psalms 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That is them. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. So I want to ask us this morning, right from the outset, how it's not as if the people here in Judah and Jerusalem were to do nothing. It's the posture of heart in their rebuilding project that they're seeking to make a name for themselves and they're specifically, we're told in the text, they're not inquiring, they're not turning to the Lord. So how much Trinity Community Church, how must we build in 2020? Or we could ask it like this, how do we build humbly? Because their building is doing so proudly. So I want to give us five quick thoughts on that. Number one, build for the glory of the Lord and not for ourselves. We'll not grow tired of saying this. Build for the glory of the Lord and not for ourselves. Babel fell because they wanted to make a name for themselves. Look what our accomplishments, look what, look what we've done. How many ministries have fallen in 2019? How many pastors have fallen in 2019 because they desired to make a name for themselves or exalt the name of a ministry or even a church? We're not interested. We're not interested in exalting the name of Trinity Community Church. It's not what we're about. We're not about treasuring and growing and proclaiming the name of Trinity, though it's a good name. <laughs> you understand what I mean? We want to build not for ourselves. We want to build saying the name of Jesus. We want to be known as a church that proclaims Christ, that Christ is why we exist, that Christ is who we point to. Raise up a pastor, proclaim the name of Tim. I don't think so. It's shallow even to say it. We're not interested. Number two, build what matters most, specifically the gospel and God's word. Build what matters most. There are so many tangents that come our way. There will be tangents in 2020 that will seek to distract us away from what matters most, the gospel and his word. And so we've got to be vigilant to keep our eyes on the gospel and, and allow the gospel to be what drives everything that we do in 2020. The word must continue to be lifted and culture must be confronted from this book, God's word. I encourage you, as we did earlier in the announcements, what is your plan for being in this book every day of 2020? What will that look like for you? Make a plan and let's build what matters most, God's word and the gospel. Number three, grow in our conviction for prayer and evangelism in 2020. 
they refused to inquire of the Lord. Things are, are, they're literally blowing up. And they refuse. They are so stubborn in their arrogance and in their pride that they refuse to turn to the Lord humbly. Church, we need to grow in our conviction of prayer at Trinity. So grateful. I'm so grateful every Sunday morning there's usually between 15 and 25 people who will gather here at, over in the gathering room, 9.15 to 9.45. Thank you for coming week after week and praying. But can I challenge us? Can I challenge us to outgrow that little room for prayer? Can I challenge us that we would grow in a conviction of inquiring of the Lord? Things can blow up around us and we literally have the ability in our day, we have the resources, we have the resilience, we have the prosperity to just fix it ourselves and never inquire of the Lord. And I wanna challenge us as a church that we would become more of a praying church than we've ever been. That in about six weeks, I'm not sure, six, seven weeks, we'll be having 24 hours of prayer. There'll be posters set out where you can sign up for an hour or two or whatever it might be. Can I, can I challenge you? Some, some of you have never come to a pr- 24 hours of prayer. Can, can I be honest? I, I don't check the names. I don't check it, with, I don't check it off of a, a roster. I, I, just, I just know how many people come, vaguely speaking. And there are reasons why you can't come on any given year. But can I challenge you? Why are we not inquiring of the Lord together, corporately, calling out to God? Because we are resilient and we are resourceful and we are prosperous. We need to grow in prayer and evangelism. So encouraged. I hear more and more people sharing about gospel conversations they are having with people. Praise God that, oh, that the spirit of God would so fill us that we would just be so bold. Respectful, gentle, as First Peter s- s- says, but we would be bold to speak the truth with love. Speaking gospel. You've heard the quote. How's the quote go? Uh, share the gospel all the time, at all times, when necessary, use words, something like that. I just butchered it. But that idea, can I just tell you, that's not the Bible. It requires words. Words need to be spoken. That just, oh, that just feeds my comfort. (laughs) Share the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words, meaning I would rather not use words. People come to saving faith because of words. Paul tells us, I need to keep moving. Number four, embrace conviction and humbly repent. 2020, embrace conviction. Conviction, repentance is a gift, church. 
I think sometimes we think of conviction as some sort of negative thing, some sort of heavy thing. Conviction is a joyful thing. We get to repent. And I want us to grow comfortable that repentance would be regular and often. Think about what a lack of repentance says. When was the last time you repented of sin? Because a lack of repentance says either, well, either it's a posture of arrogance or it's a posture of, I've, which is arrogance, I've arrived. What do I need to repent of? I mean, look at me. Recognize what's going on in our hearts. Embrace conviction and repent. Number five, build new leaders and train current leaders' discipleship. This is to ensure what matters most, the gospel and God's word. We need to be more intentional about that in 2020 and probably be sharing more about that at a future time. The people here in the text, they, they don't need to do any of that because they've got this. Trinity, let us corporately humble ourselves before the Lord. We don't have this. We have not arrived. We need God and we need a move of his Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, we move from this pride, this we've got this, to number two, a further downward spiral, a failure of leadership, and a so the Lord moment. So verses 8 through 12 is just this horrific judgment being brought to the people of God. And what are the people of God going to do? Will they repent? Will they call for a prayer meeting or a corporate fast? Look with me at verse 13. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. Is anything worse than verse 13? The pride of who needs God when we've got this, let's not inquire, let's not pray. Why? Why would we turn to him? Verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel the head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. He explains this. This is the leadership. When he talks about the elder, the honored man, and the prophet, he's talking about the, what we could just wrap up into one is the leadership. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. That's what the leaders are doing. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. The leadership of the day was speaking what the people wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. So the Lord, verse 14, cut off from Israel head and tail. And what we need to see in this text, which is going to make this text even more difficult, but I want to point out to you how many times God is doing the destroying. Pray we are ready. Verse eight, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. 
and it will fall on Israel. Verse 11, please look along with me in your Bibles. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. Verse 12 at the end, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail. Verse 17, at the end of verse 17, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for fire. No one spares another. Verse 21, at the end, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10, verse four, at the end, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Alex will be preaching next week, verse five, ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him and against the people of my wrath, I command him. Now God will do all this destruction through their enemies, the Assyrians, But you need to recognize the Assyrians are simply a pawn in the hand of God. Are you okay with chapter 9 and 10? Because, you know, last week was really nice. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. And the week before that, Everlasting Father. And before that, Mighty God. And before that, Wonderful Counselor. I love chapter 9. That's why we want to not just preach what we love or what we're drawn to. This text exists so we know other things about who our God is. You see, chapter nine and 10 is horrible and it's wonderful. It's the last thing you could ever want and it's the very thing that is needed most. Avoid it at all costs. Embrace it if it will cost you your life. This is the enemy's doing. This is the enemy's doing under the sovereign hand of God. It's hard. Jonathan Edwards entered Yale at age 13. What year did you enter Yale? Oh, that's right. None of us have been to Yale. Um, He entered Yale at 13. Four years later, he graduated top of his class. He pastored in Massachusetts for 22 years until his church tragically dismissed him. (laughs) That's another story for another time. But in January 1758, he moved to relocate to Princeton University where he had become president. He was settling in there in the area. Uh, his family hadn't moved with him yet. He would, would plan to bring them. But when he moved into the area, he received the smallpox vaccine, which brought about the flu, which three months after receiving the vaccine killed him. The greatest theologian this country has ever known, well, from this country. His wife, Sarah, and 11 children 
didn't know initially that he had passed. When she finally got word of her husband's death, she wrote a letter to her adult daughter. Quote, what shall I say? A holy, good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had my husband so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Wow. Sarah Edwards, she gets chapter nine and 10 of Isaiah. Her response was not the response of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Instead, their self-seeking will lead to their self-destruction. And that takes place even among the leaders. I want to call on the leaders of Trinity. To whatever regard you lead here at Trinity Community Church, be a leader of repentance. Be a leader of inquiring of the Lord. You want to lead? Lead in this. I want to call on all members of Trinity. We don't need to put any leaders on a pedestal. We have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, the throne of God. May there be, there, there's no need for pedestals. Number three, where wrath and grace meet. The Lord is active in these verses we read through them, just not active in the way in which we would like. Let's be honest. We live in a Christian culture that knows enough about grace to be dangerous. We think we know about grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want to just ask this, saved you from what? Save me from my sin. Yes, but let's drill a little bit deeper. Saved you from what? Well, save me from judgment for sin. Yes, and drill a little deeper. Saved you from God. You have been saved from God himself. It's his judgment that is wrought on sin. It's a sweet sound. No question about it. God saved you from himself. You were saved from the wrath, the justified judgment of God. So let's review real quick where we're at in Isaiah. Chapters one through five, the people of God have distanced themselves from God. 
Remember? That would be a big summary of those five chapters. Chapter seven through nine, God conquers their distance by promising to send Emmanuel, God with us. God will conquer the distance from their rebellion. Chapters 9b through 11, God conquers the distance by sending his new word, wrath grace. I'm just gonna call it wrath grace to his people. I say wrath grace because it is the wrath of God that ushers in the grace of God. Now we need to call a time out because we need to understand what the wrath of God is and what the wrath of God isn't. The wrath of God isn't anything like our wrath, our anger. It's important to know because we project that on God. And we have a hard time with this this idea of the wrath of God because we know what our wrath looks like. Enough's enough. It isn't God going off in some uncontrollable rage. See, for us, we're inconvenienced and we sinfully unleash our anger and our impatience But God's wrath is not reckless and it's not moody. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You see, we don't know what to do with the wrath of God. We can't imagine, we don't have a category for a pure and holy wrath. You see, the wrath of God is his measured, active response to our rebellion. His wrath seeks to defeat our wickedness and usher in his grace. And so biblically, wrath operates in two ways. There's judgment wrath, which ultimately leads to hell. Yes, there is a heaven and there is a hell. And the judgment of God, judgment wrath, ultimately leads to hell. It condemns those who reject him. But there is grace wrath. There is remedial wrath, which is the discipline of the Lord. God disciplines those who embrace him. And it is that wrath that is redemptive. It is remedial. The discipline of God intends to bring us repentance, to bring to us a heart of repentance. And that church is grace. It's grace wrath. Judgment wrath condemns us. Remedial wrath, grace wrath, is for those who are in Christ Jesus, where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That wrath, that discipline, is grace to the believer. Have you ever experienced the disciplinary, remedial, grace wrath of God? I hope so. Thank God for the discipline of the Lord that calls us back to him. Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't regard it lightly. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, remedial redemptive. Now here's the thing. Both the judgment wrath and the remedial grace wrath are here in the text. Let me just widen it, not in our specific text this morning, but in the Isaiah story. You see, there are some in Isaiah's day who will stubbornly continue to reject God and God's wrath will fall and they will be condemned. And there are those in the Isaiah story who receive the grace wrath of God and they are restored. It's what Isaiah calls the remnant people. They inquire of the Lord. They turn their hearts to God. They have been a rebellious people, but we will repent and we return. And it is in this where judgment comes to those people and it's extremely difficult times for them. But embrace it. It's where God brings back the wanderer. Another way to put it is, God could have left them. God could leave us to ourselves. I don't like this judgment of God's stuff, this wrath of God's stuff. Oh, I want to convince you, love it. Be grateful. Thank you, God, for making my life difficult to bring back the wanderer. Thank you for not loving my comfort. Thank you for not pursuing my happiness as the ultimate God expression of love. He's not coming to make sure Tim is happy for his however many years on this earth. He's coming. He brings his grace wrath to make sure Tim is being made holy. because he could have left them to themselves. And wrath still would have come, judgment still would have come, but it would have condemned them rather than remediated them. We need this text. In verse 18, for wickedness burns like fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest. It's basically a picture of the consuming fire. Verse 19, 
Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched. The people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. It's just a picture of sin's destructiveness is just destroying relationships. And it happened. Of the six kings, five of them were murdered. (laughs) That's how the next king came to throne. Verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verses one through three. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression, turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. It's this, it's this whole picture of this entire section of sin's decay that began, we began with just this stubborn pride. It moved from stubborn pride to this lack of leadership. And it moves now to chapter 10. There's no concern for the weak the oppressed. You just concern yourself with yourself. And the result is verse four. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. The people are, the imagery there, the people are huddled like prisoners of war. And there's literally a heap of dead. Historically speaking, that happened. 722 AD, the Assyrians attacked and decimated the people. We are stubborn sinners. A prayer for 2020 is that God would relentlessly pursue us. That God would awake us. That God would revive us. Point number four, wrath and grace on display. You can close your Bible if you like. That Old Testament stuff, that's hard, right? Like maybe you've heard some people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is really angry. There's a lot of wrath in the Old Testament. And then they'll say, and the God of the New Testament is really love. That's why I like my New Testament. I would submit to you there's a whole lot more grace in the Old Testament than we're aware of. It begins in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And there's a whole lot more wrath than anything we would ever see in the Old Testament. There's a whole lot more wrath in the New Testament than anything we've seen in the Old Testament. Christ was holy, innocent. Christ knew no sin, none. Imagine as Christ hung on the cross as all of humanity's sin was poured out on him. Imagine all the evil of this world landing on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. I mean, just imagine your sin. Just imagine my sin. Christ bore our sin on the cross. Christ embraced everything that in his life he had rejected. He now on the cross 
receives it. Every bit of lust is as if it becomes his. All sexual immorality, all murder, all thievery, all taking his name vainly, using his name to curse. He received every bit of that at the cross. All that he received contradicted who he was, how he had lived. All of that sin that he had once hated now became his. All the temptations that he had conquered, now it's as if he failed them all. First Corinthians 5 tells us, he who knew no sin became sin for us. First Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You see, it's not simply that Christ died for our sins. Yes, he did. He died for our sins. But what that means is he bore the guilt of our sins. Because sin must be judged. It must be punished. Christ was judged in our place on the cross of Christ. And while the physical pain of the cross was unimaginably horrific, the pain of bearing the guilt of humanity's sin was far, far worse than the pain, the physical pain of the cross. You see, we know nothing of God's wrath. We think so little of the cross of Christ. We think so little of Christ's sacrifice. Wayne Grudem writes, as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred for sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, God didn't simply forgive sin. It's not as if God just said, oh yeah, you know what, Tim, you're fine. Everything's fine. No, everything is not fine. He didn't just, let's just, let's just forget it. A husband and wife, let's just forget it. Let's just, let's just pretend it didn't happen. No, it happened. And someone must pay for what happened. Christ comes to say on the cross, I will pay I will receive the justified wrath of the Father for your sin. He bore your sin. The Father judged sin. He dealt with sin. And the way in which he dealt with it 
is he brought that judgment to himself, to the son. Christ received the judgment of God, bringing to us, yes, the grace of God. It's where wrath and grace meet. They meet on the cross of Christ. It is on the cross of Christ that as Christ breathes his final breath, he speaks these words. You know it, you're familiar. It is finished. Meaning, I have taken your sins. I have received the just, justified punishment for those sins. Those sins deserve judgment. I'll receive the judgment on your behalf. Christian, these light and momentary afflictions, what Paul calls them, calls them, these light and momentary afflictions that you now face will one day be gone. And you will live with Christ in eternity forever and ever. Why? Because it's finished. No judgment, wrath remains in a condemning, only remedial, only grace wrath remains. You're forgiven. No guilt remains. It is finished. I have been judged for your sins. It is finished. I give you my righteousness. It is finished. These light and momentary afflictions will soon fade. Eternity is forever. It is finished at the cross. This is where the wrath of God and the grace of God meet. They meet at the cross of Christ. God revive us in 2020. Let's stand together. Worship our God.